Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Bite Size Pod number three. Uh, this is part three of a four-part series that uh, I'm doing uh, today. We're going to be talking about the perfect movie. Uh, that was on my mind because we just screened Ferris Bueller's Day Off this Monday, which is a movie, John Hughes, uh, 1985, uh, 1986 Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I consider a perfect film. I wouldn't change a line. I wouldn't change a scene. Uh, it's incredible. But it's interesting. Uh, I noticed uh, some sort of unexpected undercurrents and ongoing themes when you think about perfect movies, quote-unquote, uh, or even the concept of that. Again, uh, we're doing this four-part series to give the podcast team uh, a month off, but everybody will be back uh, June 23rd with uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 152, I believe, uh, which is about comfort food cinema and Cameron Crowe's We Bought a Zoo. Tomorrow, uh, we will be screening here at the Secret Movie Club Theater uh, two movies on 35mm. They actually kick off our uh, Cons, Capers, and Heists series. Uh, we are showing A Fish Called Wanda and The Italian Job, the Michael Caine, the original Italian job. So two British movies, more or less, uh, with uh, that are just wonderful confections and glasses of champagne. And then tomorrow we are doing High Fidelity on 35 millimeter with John Cusack. Uh, and this is actually, and a karaoke party. So please stay because we're going to be uh, doing some karaoke as well. Next Wednesday, we are doing Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun will be on 35 millimeter. And this is for uh, Secret Movie Club team member, Lisey Metcalf's birthday. Uh, when you meet Lisey, you will be blown away that these were the two movies that she chose, but they're the two movies she chose. Uh, and it's going to be a blast. It's a great way to kick off summer. And Lisey even did a poster for Maverick. And then Thursday, we wrap up our Fritz Lang miniseries, Hitchcock's Hitchcock, uh, with Fury, which is my favorite Fritz Lang American film with Spencer Tracy, all about um, a mob that wants to lynch a guy in jail. Uh, and it's as brutal a movie as you're going to see. And then we show Fritz Lang's final movie, which, like one of his earliest movies and his middle movie, is about the master criminal mastermind, Dr. Mabuza, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuza. So join us. That is this week. All right. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Email us, community at secretmovieclub.com. You can uh, check out our calendar at secretmovieclub.com, as well as everything we're doing in our movie store. And uh, you can get tickets at Eventbrite. Just Google Eventbrite and uh, Secret Movie Club. And we will be announcing uh, within probably, I'm going to say, a week or two, one to two weeks, our summer schedule, our July, August, September. And uh, so stay tuned. We hope to make it our best yet. But if you like what you hear um, and or you like Secret Movie Club, uh, please give us some reviews. Um, you can review us. Uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you might get your podcasts. And uh, if you come to our events here in Los Angeles, uh, a Yelp review or a Google review, it all helps. So today, uh, in bite-sized format, I wanted to talk about uh, the concept of the perfect movie. Uh, it's interesting. It, it, the, I, right away, there's a distinction between the perfect movie, and I'm going to name you the ones that I think I'm going to talk about today. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's, in chronological order, more or less, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, uh, Godfather 1 and 2, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, 
Scorsese's Goodfellas, John Hughes's uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the Coen Brothers, the Big Lebowski, Juan Carwise in the Mood for Love, uh, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, uh, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, and even uh, the first Into the Spider Verse. And I need, I want to see Across the Spider Verse. I think I'm going to take my son. So I have not seen it yet. I know it just opened, but I loved Into the Spider Verse. Uh, the way I would define the perfect movie is it's just a blast. You wouldn't, you, you know, you think about it, you're like, I don't think I would change one person cast, one scene, one line, uh, one decision in that film. It's just pure joy. Uh, and the interesting thing is that that is different from um, maybe a great movie. This is a funny thing. The perfect movie is different from a great movie because uh, there are many uh, great movies that uh, you might not say are perfect. For instance, uh, it's really clear to me that uh, when we talk about Scorsese, Mean Streets is a great movie. Uh, it's not a perfect movie, though. Uh, it's rough. Uh, you can see him. He, he's, you know, still very young. Uh, you can see him trying things out. Everything is amazing. The majority of scenes are amazing. And at the end, you're like, this filmmaker has just blown my mind. Uh, and I want to see that movie over and over and over again. But you can also say that maybe um, certain things in the story don't go anywhere. Uh, the narrative uh, is a little unwieldy. But I think Mean Streets is a great movie. Probably not a perfect movie, but a great movie. Whereas Goodfellas, I would say, is a perfect movie and a great movie. It's my favorite Scorsese. We did Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, this Monday, June 5th, which I learned was probably the day that you could technically say Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan ditched high school because that's the day that the Cubs game took place was June 5th, 1985. That's when they shot that. And uh, so we did it. We actually had a pretty decent audience ditch and come at 11 a.m. The funny thing as I was watching Ferris is that perfect movies, and I'd be curious to hear what your perfect movie is, um, perfect movies are perfect, quote unquote, in retrospect. Uh, they're perfect because of the, the alchemy of the audience reaction and how they endure and how enjoyable they are. Uh, but when you look at the history of the making of the movies, they're often far from perfect. And in fact, uh, attendant with a lot of these movies is a lot of suffering and pain and revision and editing and writing and disastrous test screenings. Uh, and yet by the time that they come out or they're, they're greeted lukewarmly like the Big Lebowski. Uh, and at the time the movie came out, everyone was like, that was funny. But man, that's kind of a weird movie to follow up Fargo with. But then over time, people saw it a second time, a third time. And as everyone who loves Lebowski knows, and Lebowski is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, um, if you love Lebowski, uh, you click into it usually around the third screening. You know, the first time you're like, huh. The second time you're like, oh, it's a good movie. It was better than I thought. The third time you go, this is a masterpiece. And then by the 10th time, it's, as you can tell from the conventions and people who wear the shirts and people who talk and, and everybody who is influenced by that movie, um, it's become almost a philosophy, a Zen Buddhist, the dude philosophy. But now what's interesting about Big Lebowski is that its time may have passed as well. And I'm very curious with generations later on down the line, you know, if I'm an old man and I show the Big Lebowski at some future secret movie club if I'm still programming. Uh, you know, if it's me and eight of my buds in their 70s, 
uh, who are like, <laughs> and young people just don't show up because they gave the movie a shot. They heard about it from people and they're like, I don't get it. I think the other funny thing about the quote unquote perfect movie is it may not stay perfect. It, it may be perfect for a period of time when the culture and the generation and our ability to relate to the material and our understanding of the material in context with how we're experiencing existence, that's great. And, but then things change. Uh, you know, I'm reading Balzac right now, um, uh, scenes from a courtesan's life. And, uh, it's the third Balzac book that I've read. I think it'll be the last one for a while. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away by him. And uh, if you've never read any Honoré de Balzac, please read Pergorio or Lost Illusions or Scenes from a Courtesan's Life, which actually they all form a trilogy. That's why I'm reading them. Um, but what's interesting is that Balzac uh, was a writer that, and people still obviously, every, I mean, he's still a master. He's still one of the best novelists who ever lived. But, you know, you can think about when Balzac was popular, when he fell out of favor, when he came back into favor. Uh, and, and it's interesting that probably other novelists' names come up before Balzac uh, right now, but uh, it, the, the pendulum will shift and then maybe Balzac will suddenly uh, be all the rage again. So going back chronologically, the interesting thing about The Gold Rush, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, which is, again, one of my favorite films of all time and I, I think a, a perfect movie, is it's actually not even a perfect movie <laughs> Uh, it, it, itself. Um, if you've never seen The Gold Rush, it's about uh, Charlie Chaplin's little tramp character, and uh, he basically goes to Alaska to try to get some gold. And it's like the little tramp in the snow uh, with really rough cowboy people in the snow, and it's it's amazing. Um, and you have to see it. Uh, and and that's where the potato dance comes from for Charlie Chaplin. So many famous imagers that uh, have just uh, seeped into cinematic iconography. Uh, he shares a cabin with uh, two gentlemen. And there's a very famous scene where the cabin blows to the edge of a cliff and teeters on the cliff. And when you see the gold rush, you'll, you'll recognize all the gold rush iconography. Um, but what's interesting is that there's a love story in the middle of it. Um, where he falls in love with a dance hall girl who really doesn't take him seriously. Uh, and at the end, they end up together. Uh, with, you know, no surprise, no spoiler, it's a comedy. But, uh, you know, in terms of narrative and dramaturgy, you still don't know. Like at the end, of their fortunes have shifted, and, and now he uh, has tons of money, and she's down on her luck, and he uh, sort of welcomes her back even though she treated him horribly. But the ending, maybe even Chaplin intended it this way, uh, is a little weird because you go, man, I uh, is you know is she just in a bad place so she needs some help? And that's why she's, uh, you know, going to get with the tramp. And it's, does the tramp know that? And he doesn't care. Um, so it's funny with perfect movies that um, it, it sometimes you remember them as perfect. And they are. And I think The Gold Rush is perfect. And yet you can see in them, uh, you can see scenes and uh, narrative devices, things the way that they go. And you can see that they don't work. Now, moving forward to Godfather. Godfather's parts one and two. One of the one of the things I, I like to tell people is that I personally would love to make the movies that both sides of my family would love to watch. Um, the my dad's side of the family, not everybody, uh, but my dad's side of the family was largely secular, liberal, democratic voting, uh, public school teaching, 
excuse me, very civically engaged, and they had a huge influence on me. And they love cinema. And uh, my mom's side of the family was Midwestern, Minnesota, Iowa, Republican, Irish Catholic, moderate, not not the hardcore, uh, sort of really far uh, in either the Catholicism or the uh, Republicanism. But nevertheless, uh, they also loved movies, but that side of the family did not often agree with my mom's side of the family, did not often agree with my dad's side of the family. And my mom and dad got divorced when I was six. Uh, but they were amazing parents, and they uh, and I love them, and they both had, and two of my children are named after them. Uh, nevertheless, I often say that I'd love to make the movies that both sides of my family could agree on. Those movies are very rare. Uh, and also on my mom's side of the family, my, one of my uncles by marriage, my uncle Steve, was an LAPD homicide cop. And he's very conservative, very Republican, moved to Idaho uh, after he retired from being a homicide cop. And yet, if I put on Godfather 1 and 2, everybody will watch it. If I put on Jaws, everybody will watch it. If I put on Goodfellas, everybody will watch it. And those are interesting movies to me, too, when you think about a perfect movie, in that they transcend the silos and the sub-communities that we all uh, have formed and the niches and things continue to get more fractured and niche. But these movies, everybody loves. This is the funny thing to me. You know, you can listen to Tarantino wax rhapsodic about Jaws. You can hear uh, my Uncle Steve wax rhapsodic about Jaws. You can hear a film writer who is a PhD and writes film criticism, wax rhapsodic about Jaws. You can hear a film student who just wants to make movies. So it's Jaws is a fascinating film. With The Godfather 1 and 2, what I will say that's interesting is that, uh, specifically in Godfather 1 and Jaws, Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg were miserable. Miserable. They were very young. Their crews uh, did not have the full faith because they were not yet Francis Ford Coppola or Steven Spielberg as we know them. And the story goes that Francis Ford Coppola sat uh, every day and cried and wept from the stress and would hear uh, people when he would use the restroom, he'd hear crew members bagging on him and his decisions and his choices. Steven Spielberg, uh, and, and I've mentioned this numerous times on other podcasts, very famously the shark didn't work. You've heard all this about Jaws. Uh, the the budget ballooned, the schedule ballooned, but Spielberg kept at it, and he was 26, 27 when he was entrusted with that because of Duel. Spielberg stuck with it, but my understanding, and I think Spielberg has said the same, is Spielberg had a near-nervous breakdown on the film. He didn't even stay for the blowing up of the boat at the end when uh, Roy Scheider kills the shark. That... Uh, killing the shark and the explosion was shot by a B unit. Spielberg was just tapped out. He was like hanging on by a thread. And so it's interesting that, and then that movie came together in the editing and a Godfather one as well came together uh, largely in the editing. And there were very famous editing fights and there were fights all the way throughout. And even while Godfather one was being made, they were writing scenes. Uh, there was in the original script, no scene between Brando and Pacino. Interestingly, and uh, you know, between you know Vito Corleone and his son, who would become the Godfather, Michael Corleone. So uh, Coppola got Robert Town to write that scene. So and in Jaws, they were Carl Gottlieb and Spielberg, and the actors were writing scenes as they went. And the famous Indianapolis monologue that Robert Shaw gives uh, was famously rewritten three times. I, I think there was a version originally. Then John Milius took a pass at it. 
then Robert Shaw took a pass at it, and then they shot it, and it was a combination of all these things, and it was derived on the set. So again, when you think about the perfect movie, what's interesting to remember is that these people were under incredible stress. They were finding the movie in the editing, and they were essentially not stopping till they had the best possible movie, which may be another element of how you potentially get to a perfect movie. Uh, moving forward to Ferris Bueller's, the one thing I'll just say about Ferris Bueller's was that the movie had a disastrous test screening. Uh, interestingly, like so many movies, like George Lucas's American Graffiti had a disastrous test screening. And it was essentially the movie that got released and became a monster hit. But um, the Ferris Bueller's had a disastrous test screening. But thankfully, because it was all shot and it all took place in one day, the editor, Paul Hirsch, who had edited, uh, co-edited Star Wars and a number of amazing movies, and I highly recommend you read his autobiography, which I believe is called In a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. The it, Paul Hirsch tells stories about everything that he did. And he worked with De Palma, he worked with Lucas, he worked with John Hughes, he worked with a lot of amazing filmmakers. But Paul Hirsch said they were able to reorganize and reshuffle scenes because everyone was in the same costume. So Ferris, all the raw elements were there. That's another thing I think you, you have to say is that probably you have to have all the raw material and not get discouraged when it doesn't work and then just keep working until it does. Uh, that's another thing. Moving forward, Goodfellas, interestingly, I didn't hear about a lot of this until recently, but Goodfellas was a, a rough shoot. I didn't know this. I thought they were all having a blast on that shoot, but no, that wasn't the case. Uh, I heard Martin Scorsese in a very recent interview say that his assistant director, Joe Reedy, came up with a shooting schedule and budget. And it was something like, we're going to need, I'm not getting this exactly right, but we're going to need 90 days to make this movie. And uh, the studio came back and said, you have 68. And Scorsese did his best to shoot it in 68, and it ended up being 90. So what was interesting is that Scorsese's assistant director knew, but for those 20 or so days that they were over budget, over schedule, it was a misery. They were you know, rushing to do it, trying to get the shots that they wanted. And they were the studio was breathing down their necks. Warner Brothers angry that they had gone over budget over schedule, even though they had originally said we're going to need ninety days, or maybe it was they ninety and they got seventy eight. I can't remember exactly what it was, but the very famous "You think I'm funny, Joe Pesci" scene. How exactly am I funny? Was just a story that Joe Pesci had when he had worked in a restaurant and he he talked about this this a version of that story happening, and he asked Scorsese if they could do something with that. Scorsese. I think, again, another element I'm seeing in the perfect movie is a director or filmmaker being open to collaboration and contribution said, yeah, it sounds great. Let's do it. So they improved it. They typed it up and then they shot it and it became probably the most quoted uh, or one of the most quoted scenes in a very quoted uh, movie. And then from there, we've already touched on Lebowski. Uh, the then there are the two early 21st century movies uh, in the mood for love one car wise in the mood for love and Mulholland Drive David Lynch's Mulholland Drive what's fascinating to me about both of those is that they originally started as two totally different things in the mood for love when Wong Kar Wai started shooting it was a comedy it was a slapstick comedy and you should see the outtakes. I, I think you can see it on one of the iterations of the Criterion uh, DVD Blu-ray but you see these 
almost Buster Keaton slapstick shots of Tony Leung running to a hotel room with a box filled with cooking utensils. Uh, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then he spills it. That didn't make it into what ended up being a heartbreaking musical tone poem of yearning and sexual uh, yearning that may or may not have been consummated was consummated. You got it. It is consummated. Come on. But um, never, nevertheless, uh, a totally different movie. And then Mulholland Drive was originally a TV pilot that David Lynch was going to do another TV series. And the ABC was like, nope. And Lynch was heartbroken, did his TM meditation, came up with the ending the very famous ending where uh, we realize the whole thing to some extent is a transliteration and reconfiguration of tragic events in Naomi Watts's mind the moment before she committed suicide. And it becomes this horrible, in a beautiful, masterful way, horrible look at the shattered lives of so many people who come to Hollywood and just disappear down the drain. Um, but that was not exactly what David Lynch maybe even thought Mulholland Drive was going to be. Then uh, the Mad Max Fury Road, famously, uh, now we all love it. But it's interesting. Mad Max Fury Road is another one, almost like the gold rush. It's not maybe not surprisingly, because Mad Max Fury Road was inspired uh, partly by George Miller's love of silent film comedy, specifically Buster Keaton and The General. But And you can see that. Once you see that, you're like, oh, Mad Max Fury Road is kind of The General. But uh, they go, and then they come back. Uh, nevertheless... What was interesting there was they wanted to shoot in Australia like they'd shot all the other previous Mad Max movies. And then Australia just had it like crazy rains. So they ended up going to Africa because then what was going to be a, a dirty, dusty, apocalyptic outback was a flower filled, green, verdant outback that did not work. So then they went to Namibia, I think, in Africa and shot it. Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy did not get along. Tom Hardy had no idea what George Miller wanted from him and uh, felt lost the whole time. And yet, when you see the film, clearly Miller had a vision, was a masterful director, got the footage that he needed, and with his wife, who I believe edits the movies, made this movie that we now hold up as one of the, in certainly in the last 10 years it was 2015 so it's now about 8 years old but uh, in the last 10 years the one of the pinnacles of action cinema and really one of the pinnacles of action cinema in the history of action cinema i've met people who don't get it i've met people who are like that was just a weird movie and it meandered and it's also a movie i think where there are scenes i might take out or i wouldn't have dwelt as long on there's some there's a lot of stuff in the middle and in that nighttime sequence when the brother the the evil brother the buffed out brother of the the overlord and his diplomats there's like a fat diplomat and a thin diplomat and they're chasing mad max and furiosa and it's at night the there's a number of moments there where the pacing's a little odd and the the scenes are a little wonky but by the end of that film, it's probably a movie where you could say, whether it was discovered in editing or not, the sequencing of the action sequences, the banger action sequences happen about every 10 minutes and uh, minimum, you know, and it ends with a killer banger action sequence. It ends with a great ending, too. So, and there's a simplicity to the movie. So, a perfect movie also doesn't actually have to be perfect. But if the impression you walk out with is mind blown, that was an action movie. That was a comedy. 
that was a horror movie. Then there's actually a lot of imperfection that you can have in there if the the perfect moments, quote unquote, are just the pinnacles of the form. And finally, uh, Into the Spider-Verse, and I'll end here, uh, Into the Spider-Verse is interesting. I don't know as much of the production backstory. I should, except that they wisely were going to do this animated Spider-Man movie, Sony own Spider-Man, as you probably know, uh, not Marvel. And, and now they've come together so they can work together. And the Spider-Man movies, the live action ones, they, you know, they'll do two or three and then cast a new Spider-Man. But when they did this animated one, they brought on uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord. I hope I'm saying those names right. Uh, the, the, the comedy team that did 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, and uh, you know they were actually on Solo, that Han Solo movie, and then they were fired. But when I saw Into the Spider-Verse, I was blown away with how I thought it was the best Spider-Man movie I'd ever seen. Uh, and I still think that. It felt like it got the heart and soul of Spider-Man, but it also dared to be very funky and irreverent in its humor. I loved the alternate universe Peter Parker, who is sort of a sad sack and has a, a gut and is, you know, just eats pizza and cries in his apartment because his relationship <laughs> didn't work out. And then he's got to be the mentor to Miles Morales. There was a lot of really funny decisions in that movie, really off the wall decisions. And it made the movie great. I'm really looking forward to seeing Across the Spider-Verse and Beyond the Spider-Verse. I'm a little nervous because I think that Into the Spider-Verse was, was so great, so perfect, that I just always get nervous when they make a sequel to something that I get why you're making a sequel. I don't begrudge it. I just don't know how you're going to top it. Nevertheless, I've heard a lot of people say it's pretty fascinating, so we'll see. But there, I think that was taking a chance. And really, maybe when you look at all these movies, I'm going to end here. A lot of people took a chance, a real big chance, and trusted the vision. They they trusted the vision and they financed the vision. And so I think all those elements, you you can never set out to make a perfect movie. I'll end there. No, if you do, you're an idiot. I <laughs> I think you know you just try to make something that works. I'm editing my feature film right now, and I did my rough cut, and uh, I'm miserable. It doesn't work. Uh, I have so far to go. I don't know how I'm going to make it work. I have ideas. I'm not bereft of hope, but but my my first cut, my first rough cut, it was a misery. Um, and now I got to dig in, and and how am I going to make this work? So so if anyone can even just make something work, okay, I have uh, like uh, so much admiration for them. But when a movie elevates, I think you've just got tremendous talent people with a vision, people who are backing that vision, and people who probably have a high pain threshold, frankly, for disappointment, despair, uh, disaster, things going wrong, and then a willingness to be like, well, let's, the shark doesn't work. Let's figure it out. Thank you so much. That's our Bite Size Podcast uh, 3 in the books. As always, you can find out uh, what we're screening. Please come join us at secretmovieclub.com, uh, Eventbrite. You can get tickets, Secret Movie Club. You can write us, email us at community at secretmovieclub.com. And we would love reviews. If you like what we're doing, uh, your reviews will help us, whether it's for the podcast or Yelp or Google. Uh, please review us. And if there are things you think we can be doing better, and there are, then write us at community at secretmovieclub.com, and we read them and we take them to heart. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, have a great week. And Bite Size Podcast number four, the final one, will come out next Thursday. That's it. I love you, family.